Welcome to the Monday live stream. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And in this passage, we're going to discover that sometimes skeptics are too skeptical for their own good. And I say this as someone who I feel like I'm naturally inclined to be skeptical. You might see me usually defending the Christian faith, right? But but that's because I've had to defend it against my own questions before I could stand uh, and then share it with others. But in this passage we're in today, this is where Jesus goes before Pilate and there are a number of points where some skeptics, many skeptics online, especially online, the online world is kind of its own thing, right? They will say that this stuff just didn't happen. It's not historical at all. And let me give you a few examples real quick. Here's a preview. They say Pilate would never have yielded to Jewish leadership trying to manipulate him in order to crucify Jesus. They would say that Barabbas is a made up person who has a fake name. We'll talk about that in detail, giving you some research, some actual historical studies on that. And they say that Pilate never had a custom to release a prisoner at Passover, that this is unknown outside the Gospels. And I'll talk about all those claims and we'll, we'll show that I think that the biblical account of the crucifixion of Jesus is very historically accurate, even if you don't start from a place of, an, of believing the inspiration of scripture, which I do. But it's great when you can confirm those things. That inspiration is confirmed with historical evidence to support the claims about Jesus that we find in the scripture. We're also going to see two other things. One, this is one of the most used passages for like hatred towards Jewish people nowadays and historically has been. You know, you could look through church history and see it throughout time. I'll give you more details on this later on, but let's just say this is like a key passage where the Jews are like arguing with Pilate saying, hey, let's crucify Jesus, um, his blood be upon us. And this has been used, this verse has been used out of context to abuse and hate Jewish people. And we're going to talk about that as well. I'll talk about the truth of it um, and give you scripture to prove my case here um, that we shouldn't have that attitude. And finally, we'll talk about the beautiful theology that there is in the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Beautiful theology that gives us such courage and such encouragement for us sinners who know that we fall short of the glory of God and we, we need that grace and encouragement. So that's all going to be today in the Mark series, part 63. We're in Mark 15 and I've been plodding through the gospel of Mark with you verse by verse going through the entire gospel. It's been 63 studies so far, but we're coming to the tail end where there's not going to be too many more. This is close. We're close to the end. And here we are, Mark 15. Let's just start by reading the passage together. You, you know me. I like to do this in the beginning. Read through the whole passage, 15 verses. Every verse we'll just read, think about it, just kind of load in your mind the things that are being discussed here, and then we'll walk through it slowly and thoughtfully. Jesus before Pilate here. That's the title, at least in the NASB. Now here's the scripture. It says in Mark 15, 1, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, he answered him, it is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now the feast, at the feast, this is Passover, at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of 
envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And we will get to the crucifixion actually next week. But here's like a quick rundown of the things we've read. And then we're going to go back over this stuff more carefully. Um, so there's there's brilliant political maneuvering going on here. There's a, there's a plan of the Jews. They want to get Jesus crucified, but they can't do it on their own. So we're going to look at the details of this plan. But just notice first off in verse 1. It says, early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. This little meeting, it's, it's difficult to know how official <clears throat> this meeting was exactly. It might be because they already had a meeting with Jesus in the middle of the night. We talked about that last time in the Mark series. But here they have another meeting early in the morning or probably after the light had come up, after the sun had risen. This might be because technically what they had done over the night was really sketchy, to put it mildly. It was really immoral and wrong, but it was sketchy even in a technical sense. And so I could see them saying, oh, let's have a early morning after the sun's up quick meeting to solidify the things we decided over the night. That's possible that the Jews were doing that. It's just interesting here that we might be seeing the nuances of how like the Jewish, um, how they like sort of parsed out how to justify the crucifixion of Jesus. But they have a plan. They The point here that is the main point is they have a plan. They have an agenda and a plan. And let me explain why this is problematic, uh, why they need a plan. They can't just kill Jesus. They, they need a special plan because they're in a very complicated political environment. I don't know if you guys ever watched those TV shows that have like these, these complex political things going on, political maneuvering and, and this sort of thing. Um, that is very much what we're reading about in the trial of Jesus. So they can't kill Jesus, even though they want him dead, because the Jewish leadership, while they have some authority, they don't have the authority to commit, uh, you know, capital punishment to somebody. So they want to get Pilate to kill Jesus. But the question then is this, the political intrigue rises. How do you get Pilate, who doesn't care a lick about your Jewish issues, to kill Jesus. Pilate cares about peace and order in the Roman province of Judea. He doesn't care that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. It's just not on his mind. It doesn't matter to him at all. So they do leverage something Pilate does care about. Pilate cares about somebody claiming to rival Caesar. See, rivaling Caesar, coming against Caesar, threatening Caesar's kingship in the area of Judea, that's kind of a big deal. So let me give you more political context to help you understand how um, heavy this would be when they accuse Jesus of being king of the Jews before Pilate. So at the time, there is no king of the Jews. Like, there just isn't a king of the Jews. Now, you might be thinking, but wait, Mike, Herod, he was the king of the Jews, right? Herod was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. That's true. And there's a guy named Herod. And there's a couple of guys named Herod that are alive when, when Jesus is crucified, but they're different Herods. These are his kids down ages later. So they don't have the kingship anymore. Herod the Great, that's what we call him. He was the guy that tried to kill the Bethlehemite children and tried to tried to persecute Jesus when he was first born. But that guy died shortly after. And when he died, Rome didn't trust his sons to be kings. So they demoted them and they made them like 
you know, basically governors of different regions. But for Judea in particular, they don't have any governor. So like in the north, that's where in Galilee, that area, they've got like Herod the um, the Tetrarch or the, you know, the, the governor of the area in, the, in Galilee. That would be um, Herod um, Antipas. I got to always, I, even I forget all the names of the Herods. There's a bunch of them. But in Jesus's ministry time, there isn't even so much as a Jewish governor over Judea, right? It's a Roman governor. That's Pilate. That's his thing. He's there because the Jews aren't allowed to have a king. And he's the Roman governor because Rome doesn't even want the Jews to self-govern in Judea because they know the Jewish people and the Roman, you know, occupation is, is this tense, politically explosive environment. So that's what's going on. Now, if you have a Jewish man who claims to be the king of the Jews and he's getting a following, that is a direct threat to Caesar. But how do you get Pilate to believe this when Jesus has never participated in a battle? He's never started any wars. He, he, he hasn't even threatened Rome in any way, shape or form. So they realize this is the weak point. But they've got to get Pilate to respond to it. This is all actually super cool because it's super historically consistent. And again, I get excited about this. I believe the Bible is inspired of God. I think the prophecy in scripture alone gives us good reason to think of the, that God has actually revealed to us the truths that are in the Bible. But it's, it's always great to have historical confirmation. And when you see these uh, accounts consistent with the history of the time, even the political intrigues are very detailed. That's pretty neat. It just shows you this is because it really happened this way. Um, and side note, there was no historical fiction at the time. We have what we call historical fiction where we, we write a fake story about a real historical time and a journalist or someone does all this research to try to figure out what it was, was it really like back then and there? And then we write a fake story with a lot of political intrigue. That, that category of writing didn't exist back then. It wasn't a thing. Um, no, the most likely explanation is that it's just historically accurate. So let me give you another little side point you might miss. Uh, in, in Mark 15, I don't know if you noticed this, but multiple times, I think it's five times, Jesus is mentioned uh, and referred to as the king of the Jews. But every time he's called king of the Jews, it's on the lips of a Roman. It's the Romans who call him the king of the Jews. But the Jewish people, if they even if they thought he was their king, they wouldn't call him that. They would call him son of David or they would call him king of Israel. And it's interesting that in the Gospels and in Mark, we see here, when the Jews talk about the king, they say king of Israel. When the Gentiles, they say king of the Jews. This is actually preserving the way the different people groups would discuss it. Because to the Romans, that's the king of the Jews. It's kind of like if I refer to Germans, I go Germans, right? Yet they don't call themselves Germans. This is like an American thing that we do, right? We say, oh, Germans. But they're, you know, they speak Deutsch, right? I would say they speak German. These, There's a self-reference king of Israel, then there's the external reference king of the Jews. And we see that preserved in Mark 15 as well. Cool thing there. All right, let's look at verse two. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? There it is again. And he answered and said, it is as you say. Now this, this is a super interesting phrase. I don't usually go off on Greek stuff, like unless I think, think it's really valuable for you. This is one that's valuable. Okay. This Greek is this the word su leges, su leges, it's two words, su, it's like you, and then leges, you kind of hear how leges has that word like logos, it sounds similar to logos because it's related, logos being like word, well, he's like you say, you say. Now, old older scholarship, not too long ago, they were thinking, um, some of them were thinking, this is scholars, uh, they were thinking Jesus is here actually denying what Pilate is saying. Pilate's like, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus has basically gone like, 
you say I am, but I'm not. That was like the subtle implication of that. But this is not the case. Like this is not what Jesus is saying. I don't know of any translations that reflect it that way. It would also be really inconsistent with a bunch of other stuff in the Gospels. Um, it, it's weird. But there is actually a scholar who sort of shifted scholarly opinion on this. So now, is from what I've understood reading R.T. France, the majority of contemporary scholars, they have a this, this view I'm about to explain. They think suleges, when Jesus uses it, has a very nuanced special meaning. Okay. In other words, it's an idiom. Now, English idioms, we have idioms in English too, right? When a teenager says to their parent, whatever, if you are reading a transcript of this later on, you might miss the implications of whatever. But I'll say most of us, at least the people I know, would know exactly what it means when a teen says to their parent, whatever. It means I'm blowing you off, right? Whatever sounds like I'm submitting and I yield, but really it's a rebellious, rude statement is what it is. And so this, there's an idiom here where su leges, it means this. It's to affirm the content of a statement, but not its context. Now, for those of you who really want to dig deep, there's a guy named D.R. Catchpole, D.R. Catchpole. He did a study of this phrase as it appears in ancient Jewish sources as well as the New Testament. You can actually look up his his stuff. Um, I think it was in the Journal of New Testament Literature. I'm trying to remember where the paper was. And here's what it means. Um, yes, I'm the king of the Jews. It's, it's as you say, but not in the way you're thinking. That's the nuanced meaning. I'm the king of the Jews, but not the way you think. The way that a Roman governor would think of Jesus as king of the Jews, that's not how he's king of the Jews. Now, how does a Roman governor think? Oh, you're here to like start a military coup and try to, you know, liberate the people. But that's actually not what Jesus is doing. He is the king, but his kingdom is within us. His kingdom is about serving and following God and, and following Jesus as Lord means that I'm actually a better citizen in whatever country I'm in. You know, most countries that persecute their Christian populations would find that if those are godly Christians, they're going to be the best citizens. They might think Jesus is somehow, I mean, there are countries who really do. They think serving Jesus is a threat to the obedience to the government. But in all reality, like we, we are taught to be submissive in, in most scenarios to governments. Of course, not when they're asking you to go murder people or something, right? But to be submissive and be great citizens. This is actually what's going on right now in China. You know, in, in China, they're actually, they, they've even, this is, I know this is crazy, but you could look it up on your own if you like. True story. They're actually reprinting altered versions of Bible stories to put in their governmental like propaganda literature so that it makes it look like Jesus is telling them to obey China no matter what. It's weird stuff that's going on there. At any rate, that's another example of a government feeling threatened by loyalty and obedience to Jesus Christ. They really, they really don't need to, unless they're asking us to worship false gods. So let me draw out why this is super cool in the whole gospel of Mark. This, this moment with Pilate, where it's like, yeah, I'm a king, but not like you think. This moment is, is just like the moments that have all led up to this one moment. See, all leading up to this, Jesus is basically telling the people, I'm the Messiah, but not like you think. You think it's going to be this military thing, this political thing, but instead I'm going to die for your sin and spread the kingdom of God into the hearts of mankind as they receive the Holy Spirit, as they become transformed, they have a relationship with God through faith in me. This is what it's all about. I'm going to die for sin and rise again that you can believe and be saved. Like the bronze serpent that was lifted up, like the, like Jonah that was in the, in the, in the, in the, the big whale or fish or whatever it was. Um, this is, this is what the son of man will do. 
And so now, as he's been constantly trying to fix false messianic expectations in the Jewish community, now confronted with Pilate, he tries to fix false kingship expectations for us now. I think this is exciting. So, suleges is not only in Mark, that phrase, it's also in Luke and Matthew. They also say, when Jesus is asked by Pilate, are you a king? He's like, suleges. Like, yeah, it's as you say, but not in the way you think. But what's implied in Mark is even more clear in John. Now, what Mark is doing, some people are bothered by this. I think what Mark is doing is he's summarizing what Jesus said. Does that mean Jesus used the exact words, suleges? Um, very possibly he could have. And I'm also open to the idea that this is Mark summarizing what Jesus said. And a longer account of this could be what we read in John. So in John 18, let's read it. Same conversation. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom. And, and listen to this. How is this? This is so the same as, yes, I'm a king, but not like you think. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. That's what you think. You think it's a kingdom of this world, but it's not. So that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate, being a dummy, says, what is truth? It's like those people who, I, I abandon all reason, and I just go, well, what is truth anyways? And I wander away thinking I'm wise. Um, <laughs> that's my interpretation of Pilate. Um, so, so this is the idea. Yeah, Jesus is king, but not like you think. And it's a great reminder for us that the lordship of Jesus is at the same time different and greater than that of Caesar or whatever ruling people there are in your life because God wants to be king of your heart, king of, of, of your, your inner self, of the very life you live, where there's no limits to the things that belong to him in your life. Uh, this, is, this is the kingship that he asks. And it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I, I was thinking the other day, we were, we were worshiping last night at the church when I was teaching the same study I do Sunday nights. And um, I was thinking about how in worship, there's such a joy as a Christian. You, you, you know what I mean already, I'm sure. There's such a joy in the idea of giving of yourself to the Lord. Like, I just worship you, God. You're wonderful. I just give myself for your glory, Lord. Your glory, your glory. It's just all about you. There's such a joy in that, in this self-giving thing. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And that's modeled through Christ. But that's also like what the kingdom is about, is he gave himself for us that we might give ourselves for him, that he's our king in that sense. And it's beautiful. So let's um, let's look at what Pilate says, because Pilate kind of gets it. I think he kind of understands it here in Mark in the way it's worded. So... Um, Mark 15, 3, Jesus says, like, Suleges, it is as you say. The chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Um, and the reason why I'm going to say Pilate kind of gets it, he kind of gets the idea that, okay, so he's kind of a king, but he's, like, not a threat in that in that sense of a, of a armed rebellion is because he still tries to release Jesus. He still tries to get Jesus off. He, he, he doesn't feel worried or threatened by him. He will feel threatened though, but not exactly by Jesus. I think he's threatened by the Pharisees and the chief priests. We'll come back to that. So here's what amazes Pilate. 
Why is he amazed? Because the chief priests accuse him harshly. And you might ask, what did they say? And I got to share with you in Luke, because Luke actually tells us what the chief priest told to Pilate in Luke 23, verse 2. Sorry, I went to the wrong chapter. They began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Then Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? So this is one of the accusations that they bring to Jesus is, now, if you know the words of Jesus, you know, he never said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. This is a lie. This is a lie. Now, here's what, to put more context on this, it shows honestly how horrible this, these Jewish leaders are being in this moment. They just interviewed a bunch of witnesses through the night trying to find accusations that would stick to Jesus. They couldn't find one. You know what one of them, the ones they couldn't find? Paying taxes to Caesar. So they couldn't, in their own court system, find two witnesses who agreed on what Jesus said, when he said it, where he said it, all those details. They couldn't find anyone who totally agreed. So they couldn't use those accusations against Jesus. That's why the high priest pushes them. So are you the Messiah? And Christ claims this sort of divinity messianic title. And then they say, okay, let's, he deserves to die for, because they don't believe him. Uh, not because of what he said so much as that they don't believe him, but they take accusations they couldn't use in their own courts and they use them here against Pilate. And I, um, I think there's maybe a modern parallel to this. And I, and I, I hope this doesn't offend anybody. Look, this is a criticism legitimately. Okay. A criticism that applies today and applied back then as well. It's not meant to be mean or rude, but I think it's accurate. Right? So there are some Jews, even today, who when observing Sabbath, they have rules, right? They, they have rules. They're not allowed to say even flip on a switch to start, turn on a stove, to start the fire. You know, so there is many Jewish households that observe Sabbath and they will maybe turn their oven on the night before so that when um, Sabbath comes, like say before evening falls, you know, on Friday, then when Sabbath arrives as the evening falls, they've already got their oven on so that they could like maybe just reheat something, but they're not going to start a fire because you can't start a fire on the Sabbath. But these same Jewish household, households, I've heard stories where they would say, you know, we forgot to uh, turn that light on or start that fire or whatever. So they go and they knock on their neighbor's house and they're like, hey, hey, so-and-so, you're, you're not Jewish. Can you come over here and turn that fire on for me? Now, I don't think this is a big deal, but I think it's an example of a type of behavior that finds a way around rules that isn't exactly just and good. If, it's, if it was wrong, it's not wrong to start fires, but if it was wrong to start a fire on the Sabbath, then it would be wrong to ask someone else to do it as well. That would be weird. And here, if the, if the testimony of witnesses in your own Jewish court can't get you to accuse Jesus of these things, yet you're willing to ask Pilate to, to condemn Jesus for that stuff. Because to them, I think they figure, eh, it's just Pilate. It's just the Roman court, like whatever. We know Jesus is bad. And so they start becoming these false witnesses. That is very revealing. And I think it was tied to some kind of like playful treatment of the law, um, which Jesus accuses them of as well. So then in verse five, uh, four and yeah, five, we have, but they kept on, kept on insisting, saying he stirs up the people. Oh, I went to the wrong chapter again. Uh, Mark 15, verse five, but Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now this is what amazes Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor who like he many, many times has sat there and looked at a, a person accused of crimes and listened to the pros and cons and then listened to them cry in their defense He's heard every excuse in the world. He's heard every defense in the world. And what he's probably never seen 
is a person who is under danger of crucifixion, a horrific, horrible, violent way to die, just be silent in the face of accusers, especially when Pilate can tell their accusations are sketchy. Pilate's amazed because Jesus offers no defense. I think that's what Pilate was amazed about. And I think, again, the, the reason for this is ultimately to get Jesus crucified, that even now Jesus has the wisdom. Remember how many trials and issues he got out of with his, with his clever words. He used great words and wisdom to get out of issues all the time, but he doesn't do that here. He allows himself to be crucified. Here's yet another opportunity for escape that Jesus, he abandons. He, he doesn't take. He offers no defense because we have no defense and because he's going to go on our, in our place. Then in verse six, it says the chief priests began to accuse him harsh. Um, oh, I just, I just lost my place in my notes. Forgive me. All right. Verse six. <laughs> now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. Now, ding, this is one thing the skeptics will say is not true. Then there's a man named Barabbas who'd been in prison with him, uh, with the insurrectionists. They'll say Barabbas didn't exist. And they'll say that Pilate would never have bowed to the crowds where he does in these next few verses um, to crucify Jesus. These are the three things that we'll hear from the skeptics on these, on these verses. And I want to talk about those in detail now. So let me offer some cases against this, um, the, the pro-skeptic case that's against the scripture here so you can understand what their reasoning is, and we'll walk through it. So one thing they'll say is Pilate, he was a bloodthirsty man who would never bow to the Jews, and they'll point to specific stories we have that um, that show, in, in the skeptic's opinion, will sometimes show that G, um, Jesus getting crucified by Pilate because of that pressure. That doesn't make sense. That story must not be accurate. He would never have released Barabbas because he wouldn't bow to their pressure. Um, he just doesn't care. And they'll give an example from, say, Josephus or Philo. These are two authors in history who write about Pilate specifically. And both of them write very sort of harshly about Pilate. But these things get twisted a bit in the retelling. Let me give you an example. Pilate once got money from the temple treasury, the temple treasury in Israel, and he used it to build a city project this made people angry because the money in the temple treasury is what the Jews call Corbin. Corbin, I think that's the Greek version of the word. Um, I, I, I don't even know if, if, if it's just a Hebrew transliteration or not. Don't even know. But the, the term we see in the New Testament where, you know, he's like, hey, you say something's Corbin, so you won't let your parents use it. And, and Jesus actually re rebukes them for it. But we also see this when, they, when Judas throws the 30 shekels back to the um, temple rulers they won't take it into the treasury because it's blood money because that treasury money is sacred. And they're not, they're like, that's blood money. We can't take it back in. So they buy the field, it seems, in Judas's name. Anyway, you get the idea. This is important money. He takes it and spends it on a building project for the city because Romans are all about building their cities. It's a huge thing in Rome. It's like a long-standing tradition to build big, giant cities and glorify the Roman Empire by doing that. The Jewish people, in response to this, they stage a protest and we read about this in history, right? That they stage a protest and Pilate, he, I believe it's Josephus who recounts this story. Pilate puts soldiers in the midst of the crowd who's protesting about the temple money. And they disguise themselves as citizens. And when Pilate gives a signal, they pull out weapons and they start beating and even killing some of the crowd. That's Pilate. And they go, Pilate is a bloodthirsty man. We might even get allusions to this in Luke 13.1. This might be what Luke is talking about when it says, um, on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This may have been Jews coming for the feast 
and taking that opportunity, they're going to bring sacrifices and they're going to also protest Pilate's misuse of temple funds. And this might have been the same event. We don't know, but it's possible. Um, but, but here are some problems with this. Pilate seems to have been in league with the Jewish leadership in many of the cases where Philo or Josephus talk about him doing something really mean. And we look at the details of the case. For instance, and this is Craig Evans makes a really good case for this in his book, which I don't remember the title of. <laughs> I apologize. I should have wrote it down. Um, but he makes a good case for this. And he says that the temple money probably came from the high priests. They were in league with Pilate. Pilate doesn't just go and take money from the temple. In fact, Josephus carefully leaves out these details. He doesn't tell you how Pilate got the money in the first place. It would have been a battle had he just walked in there and tried to take money from the temple. The high priest is never mentioned in Josephus's account. It's the common people who protest. The priests aren't who would be the first people to be up in arms if Pilate had taken money from the temple. They're not even mentioned in Josephus's story. So it seems... As you read between the lines a little bit, it seems like Pilate was in league with the high priest, which confirms that he works with them, not against them. In one case, we read about how Pilate actually backed down. Um, he was in Caesarea at the time, and he had Roman um, banners put up in the temple, and these have Caesar on them. And Jews came to Caesarea, they, like an official group of Jews came to Caesarea, and they put their necks out to Pilate and said, we'd rather you kill us than profane the temple this way. And Pilate backed down. And he took the banners out of the temple. So Pilate, you know, they say he was bloodthirsty, but he wasn't perhaps that bloodthirsty, right? It's not so one-sided. He does live in this political intrigue time. And he does care about the high priests and their support, even if he doesn't like them. Now, imagine the following situation. The high priest writes a letter to Caesar. So you can understand the political intrigue. Just pull the covers off this thing real quick. And the high priest writes a letter to Caesar and the, and the letter says, great Caesar, great glorious Caesar, to preserve your unchallenged kingship over Israel, we delivered to Pilate a man named Jesus who was stirring up a Galilean rebellion against you, proclaiming that he is the king. But Pilate, Pilate let him go. FYI, that would not look good, right? This would not look good for Pilate. And this is the real threat of the moment. So would Pilate ever bow to the to the leadership? Was Pilate ever going to work with the Jews to try to create peace? Yes, it seems historically we have good reason to think he would, not reason to think he wouldn't. I think that um, sometimes people are too skeptical for their own good. Um, so let's talk about some more evidence in favor of Pilate, say, releasing prisoners in particular. He, he, he says there's a, a feast, a regular yearly plan that he has to release a prisoner at Passover. So some would say this would never happen. This just is, is, is outlandish and unbelievable and they would reject it. But let me build a historical case that it fits the context. So Roman rulers did have that sort of flexibility in their rule. Right? Roman governor had the liberty to, to pardon people for any reason he wanted. Now, if you guys have ever paid attention to any of the U.S. presidents we've ever had, you will know that presidents have the power to pardon people. And our presidents frequently will pardon people for political reasons, not for just and good righteous reasons. Like sometimes they'll pardon people and we're all just scratching our head. Like, I wonder why they did that. Whose back were they scratching? Like, it's weird. It looks like just corruption in our government, just from our, from my perspective anyway. And, um, and this is, this is, this is like not just America. This has been going on forever for all time. And the Roman governors had that ability and they used it for that purpose. So customs even like this exist. We actually can read multiple accounts of Roman governors releasing prisoners for civic celebrations, right? Like Passover, the biggest day of the year in Jerusalem. 
Herod Archelaus, he did something like this. He, he's a guy who um, ruled, uh, I believe it was right after Herod the Great. He was temporarily governor of Judea before they replaced the Herod rules with Roman governors. So Herod Archelaus did something like this. He, um, he released prisoners to get the goodwill of the people. We actually read accounts of him doing it. After Pilate, years after Pilate, another Roman governor of Judea in his same position, he also did it, a guy named Albinus. He ruled from 62 to 64 AD, and we read about him doing it twice in that brief, you know, less than three-year ruling period. He did it twice, and one of the times he did it was during a feast, which feast I'm not sure, but he did it during a feast, specifically Josephus mentions it was during the feast. There's also a papyrus of a Roman governor of Egypt another Roman governor in 85 AD, where he says, you, you were worthy of scourging, but I gave you to the crowds. So another Roman governor in a different province, he also did it where he released somebody who deserved to be scourged. The Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah, might allude to this. This is in Mishnah Pesachim 8.6, if you can figure out how to, how to search for that. But it says that they may, uh, they may slaughter the Passover lamb for one who they have promised to release from prison. The reason why this is interesting is because it's in a section of the Mishnah on rules for who you can sacrifice a lamb for on Passover. So can they participate in the in the sacrifice? In particular, this these are this person is someone who they will be present for Passover, but they're not present yet. So they're not there when the sacrifice is made, but they will be there when the meal is eaten. And the pass the Mishnah says, hey, you can slaughter the Passover lamb if there's a promise that this person's going to be released from prison for Passover. This is definitely, I'm, I'm, I would never build my whole case on that one quote. All I'm saying is it could be that this is in the Mishnah because there was enough, you know, times where a prisoner was released for Passover that they decided to go ahead and codify a rule about it. So that is possible. We also know this, that Roman gladiatorial contests, when they had these gladi gladiators fighting, uh, they would sometimes pull the audience to ask if a particular contestant should live or die, right? The thumbs up, thumbs down. Should they live, should they die? I think it. I think it's thumbs up, thumbs down, like that. Um, so should they live or die? They would pull the audience, meaning, catch this, that in the Roman interaction of leaders and crowds, they would let crowds vote for things like releasing prisoners. That's something that would happen, we know, at the gladiator contest. So to summarize, right, there's no record in history that says that Pilate did have this account, that did have this, uh, this practice of releasing a prisoner every Passover. That's, that's something skeptics will claim. And it's sort of true. It's sort of true. Except that we have four historical records that say he did, right? All four Gospels. And scholars would suggest that John is an independent account, that there's no dependence in John on the other Gospels on that specific issue. So we do have historical records, but some skeptics will just discount the Bible. They ignore it as if it wasn't a historical record at all. I think that's too skeptical. Um, but the favor in favor of this, other than an argument from silence, what we have is Pilate does have the ability to do this. There are examples of prisoners being released, even crowds voting on prisoner releases. And it would make sense historically, given the tension between Jews and the Roman rulers, plus Passover is riot and rebellion season, it would be politically expedient him to actually have this practice. So there's nothing anti-historical about it. And I think that when you, I love when you have these critical questions about the Bible and then you sort of poke and poke into the history of it. And it actually ends up being a strong point instead of a weak point. And that's beautiful. Let's talk about Barabbas now. 
the guy who likes to say that, that Barabbas never happened, that there is no guy named Barabbas, um, historically speaking here, um, who was going to be crucified and ended up being released. There's two main points that are made in support uh, that I've heard as I've looked into this uh, about Barabbas not being real. One is that Barabbas' name has a symbolic meaning and his name means son of the father. Bar meaning son and Abba, father, son of the father. The... <laughs> This is where it gets really thin. Okay, so I've heard I've heard like in a debate between uh, Richard Carrier, William Lane Craig, interesting debate to watch. Richard Carrier is kind of he's he's like a champion for the Jesus mythicist movement. Let me put it that way. And I did word my words carefully there for those who want to nitpick about it. Go listen to what I said. But um, but he is the champion for that movement. And that movement doesn't have much respect in scholarship. Um, actually, actually, most scholars are. I did an interview with Mike Lacona on the topic, and most scholars consider it kind of like oh, that's so weird that people think that, right? Even non-Christian scholars. So um, he'll say that in this debate with William Lane Craig, Richard Carrier will say, well, Barabbas means son of the father. No such person exists. What was weird was all of the like actual reasoning that connects the fact that his his name has a symbolic meaning, therefore he doesn't exist. Um, this is where it gets really thin. I don't know what the obvious symbolism of Barabbas being son of the father is supposed to be. I mean, I love symbolism in scripture. I think it's all over the place. I don't know what, I don't even know what it is though. Like, do you? What is Barabbas, son of the father? There's, There may be something there, but it's a stretch. Like, it's not obvious what that's supposed to symbolize. Jesus is the son of God. What is Barabbas supposed to be? It's thin. Let's just admit that that's a thin symbolism. But there's more. Um, they'll say that uh, Barabbas is a symbol, and this is Richard Carrier as well. Barabbas, it represents the scapegoat from the day of atonement ceremony. Okay, so... Forgive me if I'm losing anybody here. Uh, it's a lot of data to get into, but it's Passover when Jesus is crucified. There's another Jewish festival called Day of Atonement. This is the one time where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and puts the blood on the altar and it's meant to atone for the sin of Israel. This Day of Atonement ceremony actually had two goats, not just one. One goat was sacrificed and its blood was brought into the temple. The other goat was released and set free. And so Richard Carrier and others who follow him would say, Barabbas is meant to symbolize the Day of Atonement. That's what this is about. It's about the Day of Atonement. Let me respond to both of these accusations. And I think um, I think they're ridiculous. <laughs> so let me get into the details. Barabbas, here's, here's other possible reasons why Barabbas has the name he has. One, Barabbas is a nickname for, the, for an insurrectionist. We actually know historically that they did do this, right? When they had an, an insurrectionist, they would give them a nickname, right? The, the, there was a guy named Bar Kokhba who was leading an insurrection not too long after the time of Christ. And his name, Bar Kokhba, that's not his real name. Bar Kokhba, like Barabbas. Bar Kokhba means son of the star. And that's a nickname for this guy that's leading a rebellion. Barabbas could also just be a legitimate name. Actually, we do have people named Barabbas in, in, in ancient history from as early as the 5th century BC to 500 years after Christ, we have examples of people named Barabbas. So before Christ, after Christ, there's people named Barabbas. Why would we assume he's, an, he's a fictional character if this is a legitimate real name? But let me offer what I think is probably the most likely explanation for his name. Barabbas is probably, I think, named after his father. Barabba means son of Abba. Now, Abba, you might be like, who would be named Abba? But it actually is used as a proper name in the time of Jesus. In Tel Ilan, that, that's the name of an Israeli scholar. In her work on Palestinian names going back to before and after Christ in that area, the name Abba 
makes the number 21 spot in the top 100 names of Palestinian people at the time. So she looked at like papyri and, and gravestones and a bunch of different sources to try to see what names were used the most. Well, Abba's number 21. So there probably aren't too many people named Bar uh, or named named Abba that you could think son of Abba. It might be a, a helpful way of giving someone a, a a way to reference a person's name, especially if Barabbas's actual given name was a very common name. Now, this is something they did way more than we do nowadays. Look, people just, my name's Mike. I know there's a bunch of Mikes out there, but people still just call me Mike, right? But there were times when I was in school where the teacher would be like, all right, we got three Mikes in this class. All right, Mike, I'm going to call you Winger. I'm going to call you Smith. I'm going to call you Mike. You know, and it was always, it was always one of them gets to be Mike and the other two, we just, we get, we lose our name. But this would happen more frequently back then for a couple of reasons. One, there were a lot more people with the same name. If Barabbas had a common first name or normal, they didn't have first and last names, but if he had a common name, they would say something like perhaps Barabbas, right? Son of Abba. That's very possible. Now, to support this, in some manuscripts of Matthew 27, verses 16 and 17, some of the ancient manuscripts, his name is actually listed as Jesus Barabbas. Now, there's a debate over whether that's accurate or not. Most translations go for just Barabbas, but some go for Jesus Barabbas, where it was his his name, super common name, and then using a, a patronymic or the name of his dad to help differentiate him from other guys named Jesus, which would be very important at that time. Now, the NET translation gives the translation as Jesus Barabbas, and they, in their netbible.org, they have um, some footnotes that explain the reasons why they, you know, went that way with it. It's all free resources you can see online. So Jesus, if his first name was Jesus, if that's an actual historical account there, the, the Jesus with Barabbas part, if that's true, then it would make sense that he would be called after his dad's name. This requires disambiguation because Jesus is a super common name and Barabbas is literally there counter to Jesus. And you can't have, you don't want Jesus and Jesus, right? So you have Jesus Barabbas and you have Jesus um, of Nazareth or Jesus King of the Jews. These are differentiations. All right, all that being said, um, it seems utterly ridiculous to me that because his name has a meaning, he's not a real person. Every name in your Bible pretty much has a meaning. They're real people, though. Your name has a meaning, most likely, unless your mom just made it up when she, when she you know, named you. That my name, Michael, means who is like God, like question mark, like no one's like God. That's the idea. Who's like God? Nobody. Now, you could say, well, Mike doesn't exist. Um, oh, yeah, this guy, he has a whole ministry about showing how great and wonderful God is and how wonderful the word of God is. And his name happens to mean, like, who's like God and that nobody is like God. That's convenient. Well, okay, fine. <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> so... Let's talk about the parallel to the Day of Atonement. Uh, does Barabbas, should we doubt his existence because there's some connection between uh, him being released and the Day of Atonement, the goat, the scapegoat being released? I think it doesn't seem likely that there even is a connection here. Let me give you a few examples why. One, the scapegoat was driven to the wilderness and in the time of Jesus, most likely it was driven off a cliff. The scapegoat doesn't serve the function of like the one who's set free. Like Barabbas goes, in the, in, this, in the Gospels, Barabbas goes free. He's just free. That's it. That's the whole story for Barabbas. He's the guy who deserves to die and he's set free. But the scapegoat is a whole different ball of wax. The scapegoat, he, he's the one whom the elders of Israel, they, they put the sins of Israel on the scapegoat and they release him. And this scapegoat is looked at as a very unclean, icky thing. Nobody wants to touch it. It got to the point where 
possibly at the time of Jesus, definitely after, they would actually drive the goat out into the wilderness and toss it off a cliff. And the guy who did it was unclean until evening because he had even been near the thing. So you get the idea that the scapegoat doesn't function the way Barabbas does. The connection seems weird. The function of the scapegoat is to bear sin out of the camp of Israel while the other goat goes into the temple. But Jesus on the cross, he's not the goat going into the temple because he's actually crucified outside of Israel. In fact, Hebrews says that Jesus is the scapegoat because he is, he is uh, killed outside the camp. He's taking the sin of Israel outside the walls. That's actually what Hebrews says. So the, the symbolism is all messed up here. It's almost like Richard Carrier just wants to create symbolism so he can try to say it's not historical. It's also the wrong feast. Jesus is crucified on Passover, not the Day of Atonement. Now, I think that there could be some connection to the Day of Atonement here, some connection, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is Passover, right? The main issue is Passover. I've talked about that at length. It's beautiful, amazing stuff. But... If there was a connection to the Day of Atonement, here's what I want to suggest. That could easily be by God's design. That God wants there to be, there's obviously, I think there's a connection to Passover, but that doesn't make it non-historical unless, and I hope people who are skeptical that you'll hear me on this, if you assume anti-supernaturalism, if you assume that God is not active in the life of Jesus, then seeing symbolism could be a sign that it was made up. But if you don't make that assumption of atheism, and you think, look, there seems to be evidence for God, then this, then this looks like symbolism that God designed. The central drama of the redemption of humankind has a lot of heavy, deep theological symbolism in it. I would agree with you there. I would just say it's not the Day of Atonement primarily. It's Passover, but that symbolism is placed by God. Sometimes the circular reasoning of skeptics will end up being that. We'll frequently see this. I assume an atheist perspective, and then when I look at the Bible from that perspective, of course I conclude atheism, because I assume all that's not possible. And that does happen on occasion. So th there's a few things uh, on Barabbas. Yeah, I think that um, he's historical. The release of a prisoner seems historically consistent. The reasons they have, the motives that Pilate would have to crucify Jesus, even though he didn't want to or didn't feel like it for whatever reason, that that also is consistent. Pilate working with the Jewish leadership is consistent. All of this stuff is very consistent. All right, here we're going to dig more into the details of 15 verse 7. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. Um, this is another indication that the people Mark wrote to already knew about who, what insurrection this was, meaning that they were probably close to the time. They were aware of it. It was, it was assumed knowledge on the part of the reader from, from Mark as he writes it. Now, elsewhere, Barabbas is called a robber, but here it said he committed murder. And I remember when I was a kid reading the Gospels and thinking, wait, was he a robber or did he commit murder? Which one was it? Now, what I've since discovered is that the word robber that we see in other places in Scripture is just a derogatory term to say he's like a bad egg in society. Okay, so yeah, it could easily be both or basically the robber or thief on the cross might be a very generic idea. He may have done something much worse than just thievery. Um, it's more of like saying you're a, you're a scoundrel. It's like saying that. Um, I also think that if Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who committed murder, then it would make sense that the people he was imprisoned with got the same sentence as him. What I think this may imply is that the two people crucified next to Jesus were part of Barabbas's group and that they also had committed murder. This may be the case. Remember the thief on the cross. We use the phrase thief on the cross, of course, but... He may have been a murderer as well. Um, he may have been one who 
was murdering along with Barabbas. And that would explain why he's like, we deserve to be here. They knew what they had done, you know. So that's pretty interesting. Um, now, verse 8 says, the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. I already talked about how Pilate, it's entirely historically plausible that Pilate would do something like this. And we have multiple accounts in the text of scripture that support it as well. So Pilate, they want him to do it. Now, here's what shocks me about this. I literally never noticed this until this, this last couple of weeks as I've been studying this passage. The crowd initiated Pilate in trying to release a prisoner for them. And that seems strange to me because in my head, for some reason, I'd constructed this story. I, I, I thought of the story as being Pilate goes to the crowd and he's like, okay, they brought me Jesus. And Pilate's thinking maybe um, I could get, I could get rid of him because I, I release a prisoner. So, hey guys, you want Jesus? What's weird is that the crowd asks Pilate to release a prisoner. And here's why this is so strange. The crowd was put there by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priest, the leaders of the Jews. This is a planted political crowd. We've seen this even in our recent history. There are such things as planted political crowds. They don't represent all of the people. They represent the people who will, I can influence to my political ideology and I put them all there and they all yell the same thing, crucify him because I put them there. I don't think it's the same crowd um, as the uh, as the ones who said Hosanna. I'll get back to that a little bit later. But this crowd is under the influence of the high priest and that, that seems to be consistent in the passage, right? The, the high priest stirs up the crowd to say crucify Jesus. So why are they prompting the release of a prisoner? Here is my theory. Hold on. Let me zoom in on my face here. This, this is a theory. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. So this is just a possibility of what's going on here in the text of scripture. Just a theory. I think this is again, political theater. There's a lot of savvy, clever political work going on. The Pharisees and the leaders have long plotted against Jesus. This is not something they thought up in five minutes. This is planned out. So Jesus is there. It's at Passover. They know Pilate releases a criminal. They know Pilate may be resistant to release Jesus. They plant the right accusations. He's king of the Jews, king of the Jews. And then um, Pilate still pushes back. He's like, sees something sketchy is going on here. Doesn't want to crucify Jesus. So they tell the crowd, ask Pilate to release somebody. In fact, it's like 6 a.m. The crowd shouldn't even, there shouldn't even be a crowd there. It's like early, early morning. This is when Roman governors did their types, this type of work. And they gather there. Why are they gathered? It's not like Jews woke up in Jerusalem and just went to Pilate's like praetorium outside there. To be, hey, we just like hanging out here. It's Passover. They got things to do, places to be. But they're planted there by the Jewish leaders. Then they say, release to us a prisoner, Pilate, like you always do. And it's possible. Here's the really thin, the thinnest part of my theory. It's possible if Barabbas' first name was actually, his real name was Jesus, that what they said was, Pilate, we want you to release to us Jesus. And Pilate then pulls Jesus up. Oh, you want me to release to you Jesus? I could do that. But the crowd knows that this creates a strange situation for Pilate. Once he puts Jesus up as one to be released, this implies that Jesus is what? Condemned to be crucified. And at that point, they say, oh no, Jesus Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Now, this would publicly put Pilate in an awkward situation because now he's going to have to release Barabbas to them, which they asked for. And then Jesus, if he releases Jesus now, after having done this whole prisoner set free situation, he's mocking the people and he's he's going to lose his, his appeal to the people. 
if he releases Jesus anyways, because the whole idea of releasing a prisoner is telling the people, hey, um, you know, we're, we're yielding to you guys and your desires. We're trying to make you happy here. Someone who's going to die won't die. You pick which one. And if they release Jesus anyways, it's like saying that you were just making fun of the, the crowd. Oh, I was going to release him anyways. But I pretended that you could pick him to be released, wasting your vote, so to speak. So this might have been a plot from the high priests all along. Pilate, release to us somebody. Oh, great. I want to get Jesus out of here. How about you guys take Jesus? Oh, yeah, Jesus. We want Jesus. Barabbas. That's the one we really want. And then Pilate is in even a tighter situation where he's sort of like now because they pick Barabbas. And this is kind of hinted at in the text. Because they pick Barabbas, he sort of has to crucify Jesus. Checkmate on the part of the um, the high priest. I think that that may be the case. And it seems consistent with what follows as well. So there's my theory. Now back to more more grounded things. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Right? This seems, Pilate seems to be prompting the, the release of Jesus in a sense. He's like I, would like, I would like that. For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him whom you call <clears throat> the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. So the <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the scenario means if Pilate doesn't crucify Jesus now, he's going against the crowd whom he is trying to, you know, have the favor of at a tense time during Passover. Um, I'll read on the next two verses as well. But Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So forget convicting him. Just, just crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. This is Pilate's motive. Remember this. We're going to talk about the guilt of Pilate in a minute. We're going to remember this though. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, for them. And having after having Jesus scourged, we'll talk about that next week, what that was, and it was bad. He handed him over to be crucified. And we'll talk about the crucifixion next week as well. But um, the point here is that Jesus was crucified for political expediency, not for real guilt. He was crucified because of political like maneuvering and clever abuse and manipulation, not because of something he did wrong. He's actually in the end is crucified for being the Messiah of the Jews and the King of, of, of the Jews. And those are the things he is actually in real life. And I just, I think that that is a beautiful irony. But let me talk to, talk to you about how this is sometimes preached because, um, I've received good feedback when I've done this. I don't mean to criticize any preachers who've done this, okay? I probably did this years ago. So, like, I'm with you in this. But I, I think we can learn from it, okay? So, I've often heard it preached that it's the same crowd that shouted Hosanna that a week later shouted crucify him. Or not quite a week later, but days later. And they shout crucify him. Same crowd. And this is where I want to say that sounds cool, like it preaches well, but I don't think it's true. I don't think it's accurate. The Hosanna crowd, when you look at the details of the text, there's probably a lot of people who are, who are visitors to Jerusalem who are coming from the Galilee area and they're saying Hosanna to the son of David. They follow Jesus there. And we even read about some people in the city of Jerusalem, natives, inhabitants of Jerusalem, who are like saying, hey, what's going on? So it's not like everyone in Jerusalem was all shouting Hosanna to the king of David and then everyone in Jerusalem was all saying crucify him. Rather, what we have is Jesus bringing his crowd with him, misunderstanding the Messiah. Yes, they did. And they're shouting, Hosanna. And then we have, when Pilate stands in judgment over Jesus, a crowd that has been planted there by the religious leaders who through the night were working on and preparing this plot to take place. I think they said, hey, 
Rabbi, so-and-so, go get your people and bring them here. So-and-so, go get your people. You guys, we all know the people who are for us and against Jesus. Get them and get them in front of Pilate so that when he releases a prisoner, we can make sure they're saying to crucify Jesus. I think that that's the plot. So yes, it's a powerful preaching point, but it's not fair to the text of scripture. And, and this is on us as pastors and teachers of the Bible. Whenever we have these wonderful things that we just, we love sharing because they're so good and helpful, you have to stop and ask yourself, is it consistent with the text? When I quote this verse to make this point, have I read around it to make sure that it's accurate? That's, that's on us to do that. And I think God will bless us if we're faithful to his word. Now let's talk about some big picture stuff. Um, and then I want to get into the uh, anti-Semitism issue, which is huge. And I'm going to bring, hopefully God willing, clarity to that that will help you. You could maybe use use that info to share with others as well. Because I, in videos, I see even comments on YouTube. I see this anti-Semitic stuff that breaks my heart. Um, I don't want to see anti-Semitic, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim. I don't want to see any of that anti-stuff, to be honest. But, but this is, we're in the text that's used for anti-Semitism. So we'll talk about that too. So big picture stuff. Jesus is condemned for the two things, being Messiah, being king. He really is. Um, this is where it, what leads to though the messianic thing, uh, the, the anti-Semitism thing. The Jews here reject their Messiah. It's true that they do reject their Messiah and they do it kind of corporately, even though not every Jew did it and the early church was all Jewish um, initially, but they do reject their Messiah. This is so consistent with the Old Testament. Um, Cain rejects righteous Abel. Jesus talks about that. Sodom and Gomorrah rejected Lot who preached against, against them. He preached righteousness to them. Joseph's brothers reject him. Moses is rejected at first. And even later on, they try to kill him. Like, think about this. Moses leads him out of Egypt. Hey guys, let's kill him. I mean, this was part of the plan. Uh, David is rejected when he first reigns, um, or first is anointed as king. The armies of Israel that he'll later command, they're trying to kill him. Then later on, when he does rule, he rules only in Jerusalem and in the south and the north doesn't accept his rule for years. Later, they split into the north and south, but there was already divisions going on. Uh, Gideon is rejected when he first comes. Jephthah in the book of Judges, he's rejected when he first comes. He's actually driven away. Isaiah is rejected. Jeremiah is rejected. Ezekiel is rejected. I'm pretty sure Micah was rejected. I mean, pretty much it's easier to make a list of of God's leaders and, and saviors for the people who were not rejected than it is to make a list of those who are. So this is consistent. We, we, we sh- and the reason why I say all that is because this. One of the talking points that sort of anti-missionaries, Jewish anti-missionaries use against Christianity is to say that if Jesus was the Messiah, the Jews would have accepted him. And I think we should go through this list of people who God sent to his own people, Israel, who they rejected and say, well, if, if Isaiah was a real prophet, I mean, you're going you're gonna to say that too, right? If David was really the king, then, then Saul wouldn't have tried to hunt him down and kill him. Um, that just doesn't make sense. It assumes that the people are more righteous than they are. And well, they're not. Um, now, here's how this works. And you might see this like in, say, uh, National Geographic or History Channel. They like to recount biblical stories in weird ways. It's like a hobby of theirs. Um, but they'll say in the, in the biblical account, and this is what leads to anti-Semitism, and it truly has, uh, that the Romans are innocent, Pilate is innocent, and the Jews and their children and their future offspring are forever condemned. And there's one verse in particular they go to to support this. Not only do we have the passage where the Jews are like, crucify him, crucify him, but in Matthew 27, 25, this is probably the most quoted verse for anti-Semitism. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. This is what the crowd says. 
his blood be on us and our children. <clears throat> and so some have responded by saying, see, you guys are guilty of the blood. You're the murderers of Christ. It, it hurts me to say these words out loud. These are the words that are said, though, of the Jewish people. You probably don't know how big of a problem this has been historically. Let me give you a couple examples. Even, um, okay, so one night I was, I couldn't sleep. And I was on my phone reading papal bulls. <laughs> I know that's weird, but I'm literally just sitting there just reading papal bulls throughout history because I was just like, I want to be more familiar with papal bulls and kind of like how they work. So I'm reading all these papal bulls. You can find them online. They're free, accessible and all that. It was shocking how many papal bulls were against Jewish people. Restrictions on Jewish people, limitations on Jewish people, things that they can't do. In fact, the first time in history that I'm aware of that Jewish people were told that they had to wear a symbol to indicate that they're Jewish was in a papal bull coming from the Catholic Church. But I'm not trying here to say that Catholicism is guilty of anti-Semitism exclusively. You get like the writings of Martin Luther, and many of you are familiar with this, but Martin Luther, who I think he did many great things, but I think he also did some lame things. And in his early writings, he talks about the Jews very greatly, very wonderfully. He's like, oh, the Jewish people, they're, they're, Jesus is their Messiah. And he's very hopeful about their conversion. Later on, when, when, when he became an old angry man, what Martin Luther did was he wrote that the Jewish people, that their synagogues should be burned and that they should be like driven out. This is, and, and, and you could read the letter. It's, it's ridiculous, the stuff that, that he wrote. It, it's sad. It's shocking. And you're like, this is so inconsistent with the God of grace that you have preached. It is, however, these things, this anti-Semitism that tried to attach itself to Christianity that has pl has plagued the Jewish people. Now, this doesn't mean that Jews are always good guys and we should always say Israel's right and everything they do forever. I'm not suggesting this. I'm saying that anti-Semitism is anti-Christian and we need to not have these attitudes. So let me share with you um, that the recounting of innocent Romans, guilty Jews is not biblical at all. So here's a few specific points. Are the Romans innocent? Are the Romans innocent? No. And Pilate himself is not innocent. The Romans don't just kill Jesus. They mock and ridicule Jesus. They mock and ridicule him. They're not innocent by any stretch of the imagination. Pilate condemns Jesus to be crucified. Just let that sink in. Oh, but he did so because the Jews pushed him to. Well, yeah, but he didn't have to do that. Like he chose to. In fact, in discussing it, Pilate says to Jesus in the Gospels, don't you know I have power to kill you or set you free? And Jesus says to him, listen to the words. The one who delivered to me, you, uh, delivered me to you has the greater sin. If the sin of delivering Jesus to Pilate is the greater sin, then, this, then what, when Pilate condemns Jesus, that is also a sin. Do you catch that? There's guilt there. Yes, it's worse to be Judas betraying Jesus, but it's also not good to be Pilate. Pilate's not innocent here. Now you might say, but Mike, in the Gospels, Pilate washes his hands. But I think this is about as effective as Pilate saying, what is truth? It's him being a knucklehead, right? Pilate washes his hands. He says, what is truth? He does these things to try to absolve himself of, of guilt. We shouldn't partner with him. I know in the Coptic church, they've actually, this is a strange thing in the Coptic church, in my, in my opinion, they've sainted Pilate. Pilate's a saint. He's been sainted in the Coptic church. And I don't think we even should have the category of saint. Every Christian is a saint in that sense, but that this seems to be a little bit strange. Um, so Pilate, not only, and let's, let's go to the text itself here. 
Um, I mean, I have been going to the text, but let's go again. Mark, uh, Mark 15, 15. Look at what Pilate does. This is innocent Pilate in some people's minds. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. What does he want to do? He wants to look good politically. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate had Jesus. Did he have to do this? Did he have to have Jesus scourged, which was a horrific experience we'll talk about next week? No, he didn't. He chose to do this. This, And in addition to that, he also takes Jesus, and we read about this in the other Gospels. He sends him over to Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas to be mistreated. Um, Antipas was, was there locally for Passover, although he was normally going to be stationed in other places, and he was ruling Galilee and all that at the time. But he sends him there to be mistreated by Herod, like as a way to like make buddies by ridiculing Jesus together. So Pilate's not a good guy. Pilate Jews, they all have a hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's actually the point. As soon as you make an innocent party, the Romans, then you can vilify the Jews that much more. But when you realize that all humanity is guilty, guilty before God, and we all are sinners and everyone's on the hook, right? Jesus is crucified for all of us. Now let's talk about, um, um, okay, before I move on to the, to, yeah. Before I go on to the Jews specifically, we're going to talk about specific scripture that address the idea of whether the blood of Jesus is forever on the Jews and they're all guilty and there's like that it justifies things like the Holocaust or horrible, horrific and stupid things like that. So I'll come back to that. And if you're an anti-Semite and and you think scripture supports you, I challenge you to seriously look at the texts I'm sharing with you today. The things I'm about to tell you, please let scripture be in charge of your thinking on this topic. I'm going to say though, to start off, the gospel's for the condemned. Even if you think, oh, the Jewish people are all condemned. Yes, but the gospel's for the condemned. All humanity is condemned before God and the gospel's for them. Nicodemus, in the scripture, he's a Pharisee, a pretty bad group of people to be part of at the time of Jesus, and he becomes a believer. Joseph of Arimathea, he's the guy that offers his tomb to Jesus to be buried. He's literally a member of the Sanhedrin, the group that condemned Jesus to death and plotted against him. That's Joseph of Arimathea. Does this not show God's redemptive love towards the people who killed Jesus? The Roman soldier who helps crucify Jesus, like he assists. Maybe he was driving the nails into Jesus' hand. Maybe he stabbed Jesus with the spear. Maybe he crammed down the crown of thorns on his head. Maybe he punched him and said, ah, who hit you? Maybe he gambled for Jesus' clothes. And there he stands at the foot of the cross at the end of Mark. And he says, truly, this was the son of God. And the guy seems to become a believer. The man condemned to die with Jesus, probably an insurrectionist like Barabbas, he stands around the cross dying right, rightly for his sins. And he looks over at Jesus and he's like, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus, he embraces him. Today you'll see me in paradise. We have Peter who denies Christ multiple times. And what does he become? The chief of the apostles. Was he not guilty? He denied Christ and he becomes the chief apostle. Paul, who persecuted the church, becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees. And long after the crucifixion, he's still going out persecuting, seeing to the murder of Christians. And he becomes God's chosen apostle to the Gentiles. For those who say the Jews are forever condemned, the amount of biblical ignorance is astounding. I'm not trying to insult you, but maybe that'll happen as I talk about the problem with this view. Um, all the disciples are Jews. The early church is all Jewish. 
it's literally, you're getting to Acts like chapter 10 when you see the gospel going to the Gentiles. Like read Acts 1 through 9. That's all Jewish stuff, right? These are a bunch of Jews. Um, The disciples are all Jewish. And look at the first gospel presentation because this matters. Some want to think that Jews nowadays are somehow like forever forsaken because of having rejected the Messiah, which was always known and expected and planned on. But these are, these are Peter's words. And here's the verse I want anti, you know, anti-Semites to look at. Here is Peter's words to the literal people who were in the crowd saying, crucify him. Like the same crowd. Here's what Peter says to them. It's in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Look, who did it? You did. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They're all guilty. The godless men who did it and you who who had them do it. But God raised him up again and putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Okay, so this is where he's like, he's going to quote scripture now, but Peter's literally preaching to the people who got Jesus crucified. So if there's any place where God wants to say, you are all forever, this will be the spot. But listen to the message. And our message needs to be the same. We read this starting in verse 36. And um, sorry, just a second. Fix my note here. In verse 36, where it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know Uh, For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Okay, so again, they're the guilty ones of having crucified him. And he tells them, uh, then they say to Peter, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? These are the Jews saying, what do we do? This is where Peter could easily be like, oh, there's nothing to do. You're toast. Like his blood's upon you and your children. You're toast. Like you're out of of God's favor. He's done with you. He hates Israel forever. Um, You know, here... Here's, here's a patch you need to wear on your arm. <laughs> none of this, none of that. Listen to this. He's like, yes, you actually did it. It's literally your fault. Jesus was crucified. And what's his message? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit for this promise. Remember they said, remember the words, his blood be on us and on our children. Peter says, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself the message of of the crucifixion of Jesus is grace and forgiveness there's there's a his blood be upon us like oh we'll be guilty for, but there's the gospel of the, the church saying hey his blood be upon you the grace of his blood cover you and forgive you of all your sins and this is our message whether I go to like Jew Gentile or I go to like Arab I don't care who it is like the gospel of grace and an invitation of God's love in an otherworldly kingdom that's not about political this and and an organized army that but it's just about serving and knowing God and knowing Christ this is the message that we have and if our attitude towards Jewish people like, again, I'm not saying everything Israel does is right and you have to support everything Israel does. I think that's naive. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't support everything Israel does. But um, but I do think that we should have the message of God's grace and love extended through our lives and through our words to all people and the treatment that Jewish people have had in the name of Christ has been horrific. 
Now, I've seen a parallel of that in modern times, especially after 9-11. I had seen pastors. I mean, I remember an evangelist, evangelist, like, like to, to my own to my own ears, a well-known evangelist who I, I, I encountered and I was t- talking to him about some uh, outreach to Muslims and he says, there's no point. They'll never convert. The Muslims are just lost. And I just, it's it's like I just melted right there. <laughs> I just didn't even have words to say, you know. I was a lot younger at the time. And I thought, what on earth is wrong with you? Like, I, I, that's probably what I should have said. <laughs> but it's like, what's wrong with you? Like, they'll never be saved. Like, who do you think you are? The fact that you're saved is proof that they can be, you know. Um, we send the message of God's grace and love and forgiveness to all people. And with some people groups, we as Christians have work to do to show them that what they saw was a politicized version of Christianity, not the gospel itself. And we want to demonstrate that to them as well. So finally, let me talk about um, Barabbas briefly. I think Barabbas does have symbolic value placed by God. And the symbolic meaning is this, that Jesus, when he's on the cross, is literally on the cross that was meant for Barabbas. There were three crosses prepared that day. Barabbas was going to be on one. Jesus stands in the midst of very possibly Barabbas' own cohorts. He's there on the cross. He's there suffering and dying for, for nothing he did wrong in place of the man who did do the wrong. There, I think, is the symbolism. It's not a scapegoat thing because that's not how the, how the Day of Atonement and scapegoat even function. Jesus is the scapegoat and the one who brings the blood before the altar. He is both because he fulfills the law entirely. But the idea here is that Jesus is on the cross in the place of our sins. And I've heard many say it this way and I like it. I'm Barabbas, you're Barabbas, we deserve it, but he sets us free. He says, I will take your cross, I will die for you, that you might live, just look to me and believe. And we walk away with nothing other than a pardon we didn't deserve because he took condemnation that we deserved and he didn't. Romans 8, 33 and 34, beautiful passage to look at for this. And I hope I hope you, you're letting this sink into your heart, the amount of grace and love God has for you. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Can you be condemned in Christ? No, because Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Jesus is interceding for me now. He stands there saying, hey, I took his death. I took her death. I died for their sin. I am their justification. They're forgiven in my name. And so if you want to accuse them, you got to go through me. And I've already taken the accusations and bore the guilt and suffered the shame. And there's nothing left. Nothing left. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be those who first internalize the gospel and the grace of God that has been given to us through Jesus. That we would not water down our guilt and shame. We do stand guilty. In a sense, the, the blood on, is on us in the, in the negative sense of like we have all failed and sinned. But help us also to really take in the incredible grace and forgiveness that there is in Christ. That as far as the East is from the West, you've separated our sins from us. That our sins are no more. They'll not be brought to remembrance. That we're washed and clean. That we're what Ephesians says, holy and without blame before you in love. That in Christ, we have all those benefits of Christ. We, we're we grateful. We pray that we would just be really l- cognizant of these beautiful truths at all times. And then we ask that you'd help us proclaim it to the world. Help us look to the world with eyes of reconciliation that you've, you've looked to us with, that we would have that posture. 
where we've had any group of people that we marginalize, that we set aside as being not not worth preaching to or, or not, not, being, not worth being hopeful about their salvation, that we would stop that and we would extend the grace of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Next week, I'm going to be digging into the cross. I mean, detail. we're going to look at historically what Jesus went through, like medically and all that kind of thing. I'm not going to try and break your hearts. It's not my goal, but I want to understand what really happened. And I'm also going to look at what it means prophetically, the symbolism and the meaning of the cross, which I think is beautiful and rewarding to understand and look at. In the meantime, I have a ton of stuff coming this week. I'll, I want to tell you guys about it. If you're watching this down the road, then you'll at least know I have these videos online. But tomorrow, I'm going to be live streaming with Alan Parr on his channel. We're going to talk about six different religious groups from a biblical perspective, like JW, LDS, um, SDA, um, uh, Black Hebrew Israelite, Roman Catholic, and the most, the one that worries me the most, I'll save it. You got to show up for the one. <laughs> the one that worries me the most will do last. And um, then that's Tuesday. Then Wednesday, I have a short video clip that's coming out. Um, related to King James onlyism. Then I have Thursday, another short clip coming out that was actually just a clip from the Friday Q&A. People were telling me they really liked that dealt with God's will for our lives and plan A, plan B issues and all that kind of thing. So that's the full, that's it. That's all. That's all I got. So um, thank you so much for being here, being part of, of, of this ministry. I pray that it just, I mean, the whole reward, the whole goal of it is that it just blesses you. And then I really believe that the people who like binge on this content, like thinking biblically, that you are just getting equipped. I mean, do you feel it? Do you sense it like you get equipped and then you're just like overflowing with information that's godly, that's good, that's helpful for people and that equips you hopefully to serve and bless them. That That's my hope because that's what happens to me as I, as I do this as well. So anyway, 